So people love movies. That is just a reality. People love watching movies. I, I know I do. With theaters, Netflix, YouTube, DVDs, if anyone watches DVDs anymore, TV. We just love watching movies. And, and my guess is sometime over this summer and spring, you've probably watched a movie. On one of those platforms, you've watched a movie. And maybe hopefully you enjoyed it. And if not, then you flipped to something you did enjoy. But people love watching movies. And I think there's a reason for that. Because I think well-done movies can touch us. They can move us in ways that other things can't. Because movies and stories, when they're well done, really good storytelling, touches our heart and our soul. Because these movies, these, these TV shows, these stories, they touch on deep, timeless truths. And that resonates with us. So there's something about great movies and the power of storytelling that resonates with deep, timeless truths. And that's why we're doing this series. Because there are deep, amazing truths, yes, even in summer blockbusters. And summer's awesome because it, it, usually some of the biggest movies come out during summer. And so today we're going to look at a movie which was arguably the biggest movie of this year, and that's Avengers Infinity War. It was huge and still is. It just came out on digital this week. I've watched it twice so far this week. All sermon prep, of course. Um, and it's coming out on DVD in another week or so. And it is, and it was huge. This, so I'm curious, how many have seen Infinity War? Yeah, raise your hand if you've seen it. Yeah, a fair number of us. And if you haven't, don't worry. You, you'll still follow along in the sermon. Don't worry about that. Okay? But it, so if this movie, part of what made this movie unique, it was, it was the culmination of a 10-year master plan from Marvel. The, the, originally the comic book production company, and now they have a whole uh, movie production company. But it's a 10-year master plan culminating, bringing together multiple movie franchises, 28 superheroes and movie stars all into one film. And if you saw it, I saw it and it was awesome. It was amazing. And so before I go any further, I do want to say this. I do want to say, spoiler alert. Okay? Now, the movie's over three months old. So if you haven't seen it, read about it, Talk to someone about it. You probably don't care about it, okay? So I am not concerned about spoiling anything. By the way, a whole bunch of people die. Okay, there you go. So in case you've been living under a rock lately and have not seen a trailer, photos, or anything from this movie, I thought we'd play the trailer and get, it, get us into the Avengers Infinity War vibe. So the plot of this movie centers around Thanos, okay? He's, so here's, I've got a picture of him. Here's a picture of Thanos, okay, right up here. Okay, no, that's actually Grimace from McDonald's. But here's a real picture of Thanos, okay? So Thanos, he's a mad titan who is, who is bent on destroying half the universe. See, it's his solution to population control and limited resources, and so he's been going planet to planet, planet, killing off half of the planet. And he starts this journey of collecting the infinity stones. Those are those little glowing stones up on his glove. That's the gauntlet. And with each stone, he gains more and more supernatural powers. 
And if he's able to collect all six infinity stones, as you heard in the trailer, he could kill half the universe with a snap of his fingers. And that's exactly what he did in the movie. By the end of the movie, he collected all six infinity stones. He snapped his fingers. And half of all life throughout the universe died. And it was, this was a, a heavy movie. I mean, this movie had all the feels. And, and if you saw it and, and you, you disagree with me, I can prove it to you in seven simple words. Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good. See, man, that was, that was a scene where Spider-Man, little teenage scared Spider-Man is dying in Iron Man's arms. You're like, oh, Peter. It was really, it was really moving. But he wasn't the only one. A bunch of our favorite superheroes died. There were, there were all, a whole bunch of them. So Doctor Strange, uh, Loki, Gamora, um, pretty much most of the Guardians are gone. So like all of these died at the end of this movie. Okay, and it was, so they died. They, they literally bit the dust. Okay, see what I did there? Okay, was that too soon? Too soon? Okay, so, but the whole movie, the whole movie from beginning to end was deeply emotional. And the reason is because it dealt, its primary theme was something deeply emotional. Death. The major theme of this movie was death. The main villain, he, he literally was hell-bent on killing half the universe. Some of the, our favorite superheroes, in the end, die by disappearing into a cloud of dust. And it was heavy because death is heavy. Now, I know they're probably going to come back in Avengers 4. My, I've got my money on the time stone, so we know they're coming back. They already have franchise deals with Marvel, okay? So they're going to do something. But it didn't change the fact that watching these people, these beloved characters, it kind of got you right there. Because death is heavy. That's just a reality. In fact, it might be the heaviest it might be the most emotional thing because death brings out a whole slew of emotions and reactions. It can touch us with grief, fear, anger, loss, finality, eternity, heaven, hell, all of this unresolved business, all of this comes up in death. And the truth is, I could probably go around the room here with a mic, and every one of us would have a story of how we were touched and impacted by loss and death. Because death impacts all of us. It is the one, truly the one true uniter of all people and all living creatures. We all die. Unless Jesus comes back really soon, we're all going to die one day. And we have all been touched. There's ch chances are every one of you in here, every one of us has, have lost, have experienced loss in our families. So for me, I lost, I have no living grandparents anymore. They've all passed. That was a number of years ago. 
Um, but for me, it was really when my mom died about nine years ago. I have complications from a surgery, and, um, and I still feel it. The echo of her loss still resonates with me today. I have moments I see something on TV, I think of something, and, and, and I start to cry over it. Nine years later, that feeling, that absence of her in my life is still painful. And my guess is I could take the mic around and each one of us have been touched by death. Someone, a family member, a parent, grandparent, a friend, some of you have had folks who died natural causes, died of old age, and some have died tragically. But we share that, that death touches all of us. And I think that's part of why the Bible talks about death a whole lot. The Bible talks a lot about death. Jesus talked a lot about death. Paul wrote about death a lot. Because one... It affects all of us. And two, how we think about death and what happens after death radically shapes what we do in life. Let me say that again. How we think about death and what happens after death radically shapes what we do in life. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. I, I, I'm going to turn to a passage from Paul out of 2 Corinthians 5. It's probably the second most famous passage of Paul's that he talks about death. The first one will be 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about resurrection. And this one, Paul begins to paint a picture of what life is and what afterlife is. And he paints a contrast. So that's what I want you to listen for as we read through the scripture and I, as I explain things. Listen for the contrasts. Because Paul paints some really important contrasts between this life and the next life. And we have to get those contrasts right. We have to understand death properly. Because if we don't, we're going to miss out on his critical action step, his critical uh, call to action that he gives at the end of this passage. So we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. And, and I'm going to explain as we go along, because some of it, I, I want to give one caution is, some of it uses some complex language and some complex sentence structure. He uses some metaphors, even you starts mixing metaphors. So, so this, oops. There we go, the, the, to, to get lost. But that's okay. Stick with me. I'll be your guide through this. You ready? Should we take a look at it? Here we go. So if you want to follow along, you can flip to 2 Corinthians 5, click to it, or you could read it up on screen. Okay? Uh, so he starts out with some contrast. Here we go. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. So there's the first metaphor. There's the first metaphor where he talks about, <clears throat> excuse me, this body, this body we have right now is a tent. But in heaven, we're going to get a building. So what does he mean by this? Now, you, if you've ever been camping in a really cheap tent, you know exactly what he's talking about. Tents are flimsy. Tents are temporary. 
They're made of canvas. They're never meant to be permanent. The same thing with this body. This body is flimsy. This body is never meant to be permanent. This is the tent we're living in now here on earth. But God says there's something better in heaven. So in heaven, we will still have bodies. Notice he doesn't say this tent we live in, we're not going to live in things anymore. No, we're going to still live in a body. So, so if you've ever thought of heaven as having like us being like disembodied spirits floating around, nah. Heaven, we're going to have physical bodies, but they're going to be restored, resurrected bodies. What that looks like, I don't know. I'm not even going to go there. Okay? But scripture is very clear that we will have bodies, but they won't be temporary. They won't be flimsy. They won't get blown around by wind and end up with tears in it and, and end up sagging sometimes a little more in the middle for some of us. But that's what happens with tents, but not buildings. Buildings are meant to last. Buildings are meant to stay put. Do you know that there are still buildings that are over 6,000 years old that still exist and are still standing? I mean, that's pretty amazing. There's even a church in Turkey that is 1,500 years old, and it's still being used. I think it's, it's part church, part museum by now, but, but it's amazing though how buildings last. That's the first metaphor that he starts to shape our minds with, when we, start, when we look at what is heaven about. Okay. So let's go to the next one. Meanwhile, we groan. In these tent bodies of ours, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Okay, so we groan. And... If you've ever gotten up and after staying up way too late, say, watching Infinity War, you groan a lot. The alarm goes off. You get out of your bed and your body is creaking. Your knees are creaking and you're groaning. Our bodies groan because these are temporary bodies. And not just that they fall apart and they get weak and they get broken, but deep in every one of us, is a knowledge that there is something bigger and better in heaven. There's a body that won't go flimsy. We won't groan over ourselves in heaven. But right now, we groan. So now notice he mixes his metaphors now. First it was building, tent versus building. Now it's clothed versus naked. And then I even love it. He, he does the thing that pretty much every English teacher says you should never do, which is mix your metaphors. We want to be clothed with the building. Hey, well, it's Paul. What are we going to do? Okay? So we roll with it. We understand this idea. That's this idea of clothing. This is another metaphor that Paul uses. He used it previously in 1 Corinthians as well to talk about being clothed with a resurrected body. So that's another image here of that of taking off an old clothing and putting on a new clothing. And Paul is saying, I want to be clothed with my permanent clothing, my big, firm, strong building, 
not this flimsy canvas tent I'm stuck in here on earth. So, So he adds this second metaphor of being clothed in a heavenly body, in a resurrected body, in a restored body. And that's what will happen in heaven. So now we've we got to, what does he mean by we will not be found naked? Okay, here's the answer. I have no idea. Right? It's, and, and scholars don't either. Scholars are heavily divided about what this really means. There's little support in scripture to help explain what this phrase means in this context. We just don't know. Now there are a couple prevailing thoughts. One is this is a reference to what's called the intermediate state, which means if you've ever wondered, like, what happens after we die, after a believer dies, but before judgment and the resurrection? There's a gap there, okay? So some believe that this idea of being naked, it means we're out of our tent, our physical body, but our spirit or our soul doesn't have our resurrected clothing yet. So it's like our spirit or our soul is naked. So that's one interpretation. Another interpretation talks about that this is a reference back to Adam and Eve. In the garden, once, once they disobeyed God, their eyes were open to their own nakedness. And so this nakedness of theirs, and they were ashamed of themselves. And that represents the sin in their life. And so some say that, that Paul, what Paul is saying here is that when we're clothed, because we don't, when we're clothed in heaven, it means we're not going to be found nakedness in our sin anymore. We're going to be clothed in righteousness. Now, the truth is, either of those could be correct. Um, in, in studying it, I don't find either of those especially uh, compelling. But the good news is, we don't have to get hung up on this. Because naked is not the primary purpose, the primary message of this passage. It's painting the difference, painting the picture of what heaven is going to be like. So, let's continue. He repeats himself. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that which is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, this is one of the coolest phrases in this whole passage and possibly in all of Scripture about death. Because if you think about it, every single funeral, at some point you, you either hear or you think, you feel that life has been swallowed up by death. Someone you knew, someone you loved, someone you were related to is gone. They were alive, and death swallowed them up. But that's not how it works in God's economy. That's not how Paul understands death. He says, that's what I love it, that the mortal, in other words, the stuff that dies, is swallowed up by life. And that's the promise of being in Christ. That's the promise of having a relationship with Christ. That you may die, but life in Christ, eternal life with God, swallows up death. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he conquered the last enemy, which was death. 
And that's why I love this phrase. And I think every believer should think of death like this. Yes, life, our physical life, our tent life, might get swallowed up and lost to death. But ultimately, through Jesus Christ, death is swallowed up by life. And that's the amazing part. That's this mind shift that we need to have when we think about death. Death is swallowed up by life. Let's continue. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So in case you're not sure whose idea all of this was, it's God's. And he even says that God created us for the purpose of living eternal life with him. This resurrected life, this life that gobbles up death. We are made for that. We are made to spend an eternity with God. But sin has gotten in the way. And then he makes this amazing statement that the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, God's presence in the life and the, the person of believers, is given the Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee that all of this is going to happen and that all of this is true. And that's, that's the, the promise. If you're ever not sure what the... What, the future, what afterlife really is. The Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. That is your promise that God is true in what he says. So that longing for heaven. I think, I think most people at one time or another have a longing for heaven. We get tired of kind of the junk down here on earth. And we want to long for heaven. God's the one who put that in your heart. To long for heaven, to long for him. Because God put that in your heart. That's his purpose. And then he gave us this, the spirit. And when we live a spirit-guided life, a spirit-dependent life, then all the troubles of the now begin to fade away. We still face troubles, but all of a sudden, Maybe those troubles aren't as gigantic as they felt originally. And that's when we, when we give our lives to the Holy Spirit, when we follow His direction, when we follow His guidance, we are led by the Holy Spirit. We begin to have a right orientation about this life and the next life. He continues, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. Now, as I, as I always say, whenever you see a therefore, ask yourself what it's there for. We see a therefore, we ask ourselves what it's there for. And it's there to tell us when we believe this about the present life and the future life. Therefore, we can be confident. Therefore, we can know what the future and the future future is going to hold. 
but we have to have the right beliefs about the present and the future, about this life and eternal life. And, and this is the one, when we have that orientation, therefore, we can be confident to live by faith and not by sight. And if you ever find yourself living by sight, which means paying attention to only the stuff you can see, you can hold on to, you can understand, you can calculate, you can categorize. When you find yourself being driven by what you can see, Chances are, it means that you're losing sight of heaven. You're losing sight of what is unseen and settling for what is seen. And you're missing the therefore. That's the only way we can live by faith and not by sight. Is that we have ourselves anchored in an idea of heaven. In a right, good, biblical desire longing for heaven. So he continues this thought. We are confident. He says it again, two sentences in a row. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And he sort of summarizes this, this section. Away with the Lord is better than at home in this body. Now, this is not a call for mass suicides, okay? Th this verse actually has been, believe it or not, for some Christian cults who are way off the reservation here, that this is part of what they'll use, that like it's actually better to die. <laughs> we should all, we, we should let Thanos snap both fingers because <laughs> it means we'll get to heaven. No, 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 no. That is not what, that is not what, what Paul is saying here. He is just recognizing the difference how much do you love your present life versus how much do you love the idea of life with God for eternity? It's really easy to get that distorted. That's what he's talking about here. It's to remind us that it is always better. We should be longing for life with God for eternity, for heaven, for the, the, the rule of Christ, the kingdom of God. We shouldn't be longing for life here on earth. This isn't our home. We're just living in tents. Our real home is in heaven. And when you understand this truth, when you understand this, about this world and the next world, you too can have the confidence Paul has to live by faith, not by sight. So then, then he, he gives us this confidence. He gives the why we should have the confidence. Here's the confidence we can have. And then he tells us the action step. What's the point of all of this end times theology? In, in theology terms, it's called eschatology. What's the point of all this eschatology? He says it in the next verse. Here it is. So we make it our goal to please him. We make it our goal to please God, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. That's the point of eschatology. That's the point of end times theology. 
anything you believe about the future, about heaven, hell, judgment, any of that. It's so that we can please God. And so to be honest, that's one of my biggest beefs about uh, end times theologians. And you've probably seen, maybe you've seen these, uh, these guys on Facebook or seen an article that got fl- gets floated around that, that these folks who spend all of their ministry focused on the chronology of the end times, on which events, on the prophecies that, that are pointing to the end of the world, all of this. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But that is not the main goal. Here, Paul says what the purpose is. It's to please God. Sometimes I feel like, like commenting up on YouTube to these, these end times theologians who, who seem rather obsessed with the events of the, the end times. Are you pleasing God? What, what good is all of your theology if you're not pleasing God? If you're not living to honor and glorify God? Your future theology should affect your present ethics. That's what Paul is saying here. And and, and if you've ever kind of gone down that rabbit hole, and I've been there, and you do, you start reading about one thing, and then it goes to another thing, and you watch one video, and then another video, and another video, and and all of a sudden you've just spent the last two hours listening to these end-time theologians, and you've totally lost sight that the purpose of all of that is to please God. So I have a new question that I'm going to be asking any person who wants to come talk to me about end times. Just be forewarned. If you ever come want to know like the tribulation, this, the rapture, any of that, I'll talk that. I will. But I'm going to ask you, are you pleasing the Lord? Because that's what Paul says here. That's the point of, of all of this theology. Are you pleasing the Lord? So then he closes with this statement. For or because... Um, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. See, Paul knows we all will face judgment. Every one of us, every person on earth now or has been on earth or will be on earth will, will face judgment. And we will have to we will be held accountable for what we have done here on earth. We will be accountable to what we believe about Jesus Christ. We'll be accountable for how we have let that belief affect how we live. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's, it's going to happen. And Paul knows that. And he reminds us and says, that's why we're here to please God. Because we're all going to face judgment one day. So our belief about end times, what we believe about what will happen in the end, all of that is useless unless it drives our behavior to please God. Unless it drives our behavior to please God because we will answer to Him alone. So, let's summarize. What's Paul been saying here? First, he paints a contrast of what tent life right now is like and what building life is like. And he tells us building life is a whole lot better. Life in heaven is a whole lot better. 
That's what we should be longing for. And that this, this life we're in here is just temporary. It's flimsy. This is not our true home. It's not our true dwelling place, this body. <coughs> Excuse me. Then, then he says it's better in heaven. The best of what earth can give us is mere pittance compared to even the worst in heaven. And thankfully, there's no worst in heaven, so. But the best of what you could experience here is just a shadow of what heaven is. And I think we can lose sight of that. And then lastly, that belief, that understanding should impact how we live. Live to please God. Not live to please ourselves. Not live to please our family. Not live to please the people around us. Live to please God. So, what's Paul, what's Paul re- really saying here? Well, I'll sum it up like this. If you can't taste heaven, you'll eat anything on earth. If you can't taste heaven, you'll eat anything on earth. You see... The Bible tells us what heaven is like. And we can get little, little bites of heaven. Little morsels. But this is unseen. See, life on earth is seen. This is what's tangible. We can feel, we can make sense of this. So this is where we pour our energies. But if you can't taste heaven, you'll eat anything on earth. Hey, that new job gives you a little bit more money. Um, money, money means I'm important. I'm in a relationship. Pleasure, a little bit of pleasure mm, means I'm loved. Get that bigger house, that better car, that better phone. Oh. Mm. It means I've made it. I'm so thrown up after this sermon. <laughs> but if we can't taste heaven, we will eat anything on earth. Anything that comes our way to give us meaning and significance. A little bit of money. A new promotion. Ooh, a bigger house. Let's have kids. We got to have lots of kids. Yeah, I'm going over the edge on this one. (laughs) But what Paul is saying is this world, this unseen world that we can't live in right now, This is what really matters. And part of why it's so important. I believe church is really important. You know why? Because it can give us a little tiny taste. Is it possible this is what heaven could be like? When you love and receive love, a little taste. When you forgive and grant, when you receive forgiveness and grant forgiveness, a little taste of heaven. 
But for the most part, we have to trust God that this is really good. Because you see, we live in a present obsessed world. We live in a world of now. We live in a world of this. And everything around you is saying, grab what you can. Take a bite. Take a bite. Take a bite. And you're going to do it. Because if you can't taste heaven, you're going to eat anything on earth. Anything that your job, thank you, wash down some of that cake. Anything that your success, anything that your family, anything this world throws at you, you're going to bite. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. We need to have a taste of heaven. We need to know this is really good. Because everything in our now-obsessed world says this is everything. This is all it. So take what you can get. And I think for us to have a Christian, a biblical view of this life and the next, we have to believe that this is better than that. Live by faith, not by sight. Trust the unseen, not the seen. Believe in the permanent, not the temporary. Dwell in buildings. Don't make your life intense. Because this is what God has to offer. But we just can't experience it now other than little tastes of heaven. Little tastes of heaven. So if you can't taste heaven, you'll eat anything here on earth. And this is the stuff that will steal your soul. This is the stuff that will rob you of peace. This is the stuff that will rob you of love. This, will, this is the stuff that will make you no longer care about that. Now, this is angel food cake. Like what I did there? Heaven, angel food cake. This is my single favorite type of cake. These are generic cupcakes from Cub. If I were to eat all of these generic cupcakes from Cub, I would not want to have even a single taste of the angel food cake. And I'm going to be honest with you. Some of you are gorging yourself on cupcakes because this life is all you can think about. And Paul is calling on you. Paul is calling on us to have a greater view of life, that this life is so much better. Pleasing God is so much better than this life. So if you can't taste heaven, you'll eat anything on earth. And God has something so much better in store for you.
join me in prayer. God, you are preparing a place for us, for your followers, for your believers. And we thank you for that. Lord, we, we, we sit with anticipation, with excitement of what heaven, what life eternal with you will be like. And today, we reject, we renounce, we turn against and turn away from all of the false, shallow promises of this world. We don't turn our back on this world because you love this world but we turn our back on all the promises it offers. God, we, we reject the lie that this life is all we have. And we recognize what we cannot see. We have faith in what you have said about eternity with you, that it is that good. God, so give us all courage to live lives that please you to live lives that honor you so that we can stand before the judgment seat without fear, without disgrace. We stand holding the name of Christ, justified and made right through Christ in your eyes. And let us be a church that pleases you. Let us be that, Lord. We thank you, and I thank you that you love us not for anything that we do, but exactly for who we are, your creation. So I thank you, and I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, amen.